the ones that we take, that's secondary. In terms of economics, you should think of antibiotics that way, as something that we mostly give to animals, and also, from time to time, take ourselves, often stupidly. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. shape our culture in many ways that people don't always think about. And some of the least safe drug use can actually be sanctioned by doctors or brought on by heavy pressure in society to be the best. I'm talking about antibiotic resistance and doping at the Olympics. These are two pretty unrelated ideas, but as you'll hear, these are two topics that are not really talked about. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today, we've got a special guest. Well, all of our guests are special. This one is named Mark Pearl. He's sitting in my kitchen in the high desert. He drove up here all the way from Los Angeles, and he's here to talk about his new book, The Day It Finally Happens, Alien Contact, Dinosaur Parks, Immortal Humans, and Other Possible Phenomena. Mike, welcome to the show. Hello. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were a staff writer at Vice for about three years. You've also written for The Hollywood Reporter and The Outline, and you went to school at Chapman University for screenwriting. And it bears mentioning that you edited me once for a single article on Vice.com four years ago, just trying to be transparent here. But I would say that your beat, Mike, you know, journalists have beats or topics that they regularly cover, like healthcare or criminal justice. I would say your beat is despair. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I, I mean, I like, to, I like to say that my beat is uh, 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 the future, but, um, you know, the way that the way that I think we we sort of look at the future these days, they're sort of the same, <laughs> the future and despair, uh, unfortunately. So uh, if you want to say I cover despair, that's um, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Well, now you have this book It's kind of exploring the future in this interesting way. It's taking a lot of these wild worst case scenarios, like what happens when the last fish in the ocean dies or truly bizarre hypothetical situations like what if a real life Jurassic Park opens? It's kind of structured like flash forward this podcast that imagines a scenario as if it had just happened in yesterday's news, then breaks down this potential future using facts and experts. And it seems like a lot of international travel. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like trying to put trying to put things that we uh, think about uh, with th that we sort of like that we worry about or uh, fantasize about. But we don't sort of think about like what comes, what comes after it, the breakthrough has occurred. What comes next? And so I'm trying to make that sort of realistic and tangible um, in people's minds, and, and using as much um, you know real research and and firsthand accounts as I possibly can, so that it's not just like me speculating wildly. Although I do also speculate wildly from time to time. Right. And there's a lot of there's a good amount of humor in there as well. Oh, thank you. I, 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 I try. I try. I'm not the funniest guy in the world, but I try. This is a show about drugs and the people that use them. And so we're going to be talking about two chapters from the book, the day antibiotics don't work anymore and the day doping is allowed at the Olympics. So I want to get more of an overview of the book first. For me, some of your reporting has kind of been therapeutic uh, because I'm an anxious person. I'm always thinking about the end of the world, trademark. Because as a kid, I grew up in this evangelical household that was saturated with apocalyptic themes, from the Left Behind series to all the anxiety about Y2K, then 9-11 happened. 
Um, so being able to go to the extreme and see what some of the actual risks are, what some of the actual evidence for whatever happening is, it's been kind of soothing in a way. Um, and you've been very open about your own anxiety. So what motivated you to write this book? You know, it, you you touched on it almost exactly. I think there's a there's a, a an eschatological bent um, with the way that people, for like my lifetime at least, have have looked at the present, both the present and the future. Left behind, I think, is a big part of that. Uh, there are a lot of people um, in a lot of different religious communities who are at at this point in time, very, very fixated on the world coming to an end. And um, there's nothing, there's no real evidence pointing to an imminent apocalypse of any sort. Um, the, the apocalypse is a biblical idea. It's not really a scientific idea. Uh, we, we are not, we're not really within range of uh, the circumstances necessary to bring about human extinction not really but we always talk like we are you know climate change climate change is something that will be absolutely catastrophic that will bring about perhaps billions of deaths but um that's not human extinction uh we 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 worry about what would happen if like um like the antibiotic chapter is is a is a really good example. You know, we uh, we have it's an understatement to say that we should be worried about these things, but it's quite an overstatement to say that for the most part, any one of these things is going to literally kill us all. But but the idea that something is going to kill us all is kind of the only way. It's the only place our mind goes. Uh, nuclear weapons, sort of same thing. If there was a regional nuclear war um, where a hundred nuclear weapons were used, you know, that would bring about a nuclear winter and a nuclear winter would kill billions again. That's, again, that's not everyone. So when these things happen, um, they, they change everything. They cause immense tragedy. But we, but we claw our way through it. We clawed our way through. We clawed our way through tragedies before, through through World War One, through the Spanish flu, which was arguably worse, and through World War Two. Those were, in a sense, apocalypses. Those were unbelievably catastrophic human tragedies. Um, but but we survived. And, and I think if you write about these things in the abstract, you would say, you would have said, like, uh, as World War II was gearing up, you know, well, if, if, uh, if, if, the, if war breaks out in, in Serbia, then, oh, uh, my God, think about how terrible that would be because uh, then Austria and, Austria and Hungary would be pulled in and then Russia would be pulled in and uh, the world would end. But it, it, it caused a war, but the world didn't end. Um, so uh, when you game these things out, then we find out that, you know, hell yeah, they're scary. They're super scary. This stuff is scary as hell. Um, but I think the point of it was to say that, like, um, one way or another, we... One way or another, we probably make it, and 
that is the that's the tangible reality of of human tragedy that that the scariest part in a sense is that we have to figure out how to how to become a species that that endures that thing and then gets through it gets to the other side so it, it was writing this book the process of it kind of reassuring did it help you find more optimism about the future yeah definitely yeah especially especially toward the end because um i tried to get i tried to get all the way to the heat death of the universe you know and um you know because i think people people in fact people say inevitable heat death of the universe and uh when I started asking phys- when I started asking around to physicists, I was like, "Is there really an inevitable heat death of the universe?" And they were like, "Oh, I mean, uh, if if you actually look at the things that could end the universe, most of them come way before heat death. <laughs> you know, uh, like we, like uh, there there could be a there could be vacuum decay. You know, vacuum decay is this circumstance where essentially the <laughs> the fundamental laws of physics." Uh, suddenly change and just everything is more or less blinked out of existence in a moment and it, and it, and that's something that could happen at any time um and so like so the heat death of the universe is just like if you take if you take things as if you t- if you take the math as far as it goes uh in terms of entropy and in terms of of heat then everything gets um very very spread out and very very cold because that's just like that's where the math takes us but we may well not get there but the other thing about heat death is that like it's only one of these phenomena that we're sort of like learning to game out on a long timeline and something like something like dark energy um is a is just the latest in observable scientific phenomena that we do not understand at all. And so what it kind of taught me was not to argue that like humanity will be around together. uh, It will be around forever. You know, it won't, it'll turn into something else. (laughs) It'll turn into a, it'll turn into a, a, a different species, but it, it taught me to, it, it taught me that like, we have no reason to assume that we're going to die that we're all going to die in the near future and that we should and that we should live our lives from that assumption everything that is within the sort of like conceivable future um is something that we when we think about the conceivable future the sort of like comprehensible future it makes more sense in human terms to think about how to survive it instead of thinking about rolling over and dying basically well, let's get back to drugs. Uh, this is a drug podcast. There's plenty of drugs in the book, yeah. I want to talk about antibiotic resistance first. Uh, there are many antibiotics, amoxicillin, toxicycline, azithromycin, or the z and probably the most famous is penicillin. So what is antibiotic resistance, and how serious is this problem? So what blew my mind about antibiotic resistance, and maybe a lot of people already know this. I, I didn't until I was researching this for the book. Was that uh, when they were giving when they were giving out the um, Nobel Prize to um, Alexander Fleming for inventing penicillin? This was just after World War II, which had been this big coming out party for for penicillin. You know, it'd been like the the big not not the not the initial rollout, but the big debut uh, was World War II. Um, 
So this guy who had invented the, the drug that had saved hundreds of thousands of lives on the battlefield, they gave him the Nobel Prize. And, and he stood up there and he said, hey, don't take too much of this stuff. We could become resistant. He, you know, right then at that moment, he said that to the crowd and, uh, and we didn't listen. So what he was saying was that um, if you, uh, if you are, uh, if you're giving, if you're giving out antibiotics and people aren't finishing the course of antibiotics, then uh, what you're essentially doing is um, exposing, a, exposing a colony of bacteria to the to the chemical in this case penicillin that um, that they can't that they can't survive exposure to except that a few of them a, a tiny number of them always will and uh, and those ones will I mean this is just basic uh, natural selection you suddenly create a very very small community of the survivors. And on a long enough timeline, as more and more drugs come out and more and more bacteria evolve to survive this ex this this exposure to um, antibiotics, um, then you create colonies that are sort of like boosted by the presence of these survivor organisms. And then uh, when the colonies include those survivor organisms, um, then th so those genes get passed on until we get entire colonies of, of survivors, the, what we call superbugs, you know. So MRSA is an example of this, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Um, I, have, I have such a hard time saying it, but I just read the audiobook for my book, um, so I got a bit used to it. But, yeah, so uh, so... When these um, when the when these bacteria kind of like uh, on a long enough timeline, we create entire subspecies of of these bacteria that have a tendency to kill us that uh, that we can't treat with our with our first line bacteria. So we have to go to our second choice down the line, our third choice down the line. So now there's not just MRSA, but we're now seeing uh, so methicillin methicillin is out in the case of a lot of these infections when we try to use um, injectable antibiotics. So then we go down the line, we have vancomycin. And you give somebody vancomycin, that usually works. But now we're seeing resistance to that. Um, and so, uh, you know, as, as, we go, as we go further and further down the line for a lot of these infections, they lead to worse and worse infections and death. And that means that you know, in short order, in a few decades, we're going to see um, it becoming more and more prevalent and then finally it becoming the norm for an infection that you get from a splinter or something like that to be resistant to all of our antibiotics. So suddenly, suddenly you get that splinter and you have to be quarantined because you have methicillin and vancomycin resistant bacteria that are going to cause you to you know get uh get a infection that's going to potentially kill you or sometimes go away on its own so pretty scary stuff and british economist jim o'neill you noted this in your book predicts that 10 million people will die per year and the cdc has said that a third of prescription antibiotic prescriptions are unnecessary 
as a kid, I remember having antibiotics thrown at me by doctors. Just me too. You're sick. Here, have bubble gum flavored antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so missed doses or failure to finish a course of antibiotics is kind of what helps contribute to this. But uh, also, antibiotics are ubiquitous in meat as well, as you note know, in the book. Eighty percent of antibiotics are used for livestock that we then eat. Yeah. That's our that's how that's mostly how we use antibiotics is when we when we um get animals very big very very fast um for various reasons if you also give them a bunch of antibiotics they get big faster uh, <laughs> because you know that's it's not very healthy to be shoveling corn into a cow it's not really typically good for the cow um but uh the cow the cow will endure it better if you um if you were also pump it full of antibiotics at the same time and so what we've discovered is that as convenient as it is to like um take antibiotics because we have infections like that's that's a good use of antibiotics but even better you can make way more money off of your livestock if you pump them full of this stuff and like and and as a species that is how we use antibiotics is that we give them we give them to the animals that we eat like the ones that we take that's secondary in terms of economics you should think of antibiotics that way as something that we mostly give to animals and also from time to time take ourselves often stupidly in the book you start with this rampage of people killing their pets uh, because of, uh, I'm probably going to screw this up, but psittacosis or parrot fever becomes an antibiotic resistant and starts spreading in, a, in, a, in the scenario that you're predicting or, or uh, hypothesizing, what would you call it? <laughs> Guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, hypothesizing is good. I like that, yeah. One billion birds is killed. It kind of reminds me of uh, this chicken avian flu outbreak that killed 50 million birds in 2015, according to the USDA. Now, of course, flu is not bacteria. It's a virus. You can use antibiotics for that. But I just remember this horrible report on NPR of farmers having to go into their these big warehouses full of chickens with foam and just spray the foam until it fills up the entire thing and then the birds just suffocate and they have to bury them on the land. So when I was reading your book, I was just thinking of this horrific, like we would, it, it's true. If an antibiotic resistant outbreak were to start with animals, which seems most likely because we give them to so many animals, we would just kill so many of them. Exactly. We, we, we would, we would be just so desperate to, uh, you know, have that threat neutralized that we're just burning <laughs> burning billions of animals on pyres yeah and and so that's that's sort of what i the each of the each of the scenarios in the book starts with a kind of like little bit of little piece of fiction um to sort of like set your mind in motion and um this was an interesting chapter to write because i'm far from the first person to write fiction about uh about an antibiotic uh about a, a drug resistant bacterial outbreak um, so what I decided to write was uh, not so much a step-by-step, play-by-play -step, uh, -play little little uh, description of the outbreak itself, but to try and describe 
the psychology, the, 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 the mass psychology of a reaction to such an outbreak. Because we do know a bit about these bacteria at this point, and, uh, and we are pretty scared of them. Um, but there, you know, there's, there's never been like a major outbreak of one of these, one of these bacteria. So I tried, so I, so that was what I did. I took this, this disease called parrot fever and I imagined like, well, what if a lot of people had birds in their homes and there was this outbreak of parrot fever at that, at that moment in time, um, Everybody would think that they that they were exposed or their kids were exposed, and uh, and and we wouldn't take the time to positively verify that uh, that the that the outbreak was definitely coming from these like bird pets. We would just kill them. We would just rush to kill them. Um, you know, it, at least in the United States, we are very good at like jumping to conclusions not waiting for verification, uh, reacting to things very, in a very scared way. Um, and so, so like I said, we have every reason to be scared. But, um, you know, that, that opening chapter is my way of describing um, the outbreak itself, yes, but also the fear, the incredible panic that's going to come out, that's going to come about the first time the first time people turn to the news and the news says there's a bacteria coming for you and your kids and there are no drugs to treat it. People are going to absolutely shit themselves that, the, you know, on the day that that finally happens. So I've kind of heard that antibiotic resistance may not actually be as big of a problem as some people propose because we'll find some other solution that'll save the day that's not antibiotic related. I mean, you can keep going down the line. Like, as soon as you try a new antibiotic, there will be a resistance that evolves soon enough. But I haven't been able to, I wasn't able to find any evidence of this, any of these other scenarios um, being actually that effective. Have you encountered anything like that in your research? So there, I mean, there are two ways to answer that. So on, on one hand, we have, um, we have orphaned, we have orphaned antibiotics. So there's, there's this drug phosphomycin that is not a spectacular antibiotic. It has a lot of side effects and it's not, it's less effective than vancomycin. So when you go to the FDA, you, you've just spent millions of dollars researching antibiotics and you say, well, here's what I have. I have phosphomycin. The FDA looks at that drug and they say, do we need it? No, it's way worse than vancomycin in, in terms of its efficacy. And also it has tons of side effects. So it goes on a shelf in some university, um, you know, pharmacology lab and, uh, and, and it just, it just sits there orphaned and alone and sad languishing, um, until down the line, that drug that never got, it got FDA approval in, in some cases, but it never got FDA approval as an injectable antibiotic. So bacteria aren't being exposed to phosphomycin in large quantities, not in the U S anyway, if there were some some significant outbreak all of a sudden today of a vancomycin resistant bacteria, there's a good chance that you could use this orphaned antibiotic phosphomycin to treat that. It wouldn't be fun. It's not a fun drug to take, but you know, it could potentially maybe depending on many factors, save your life if you get your hands on it. 
And the only way to get your hands on it would be to find people who can basically illegally uh, synthesize and distribute that chemical. Um, and as we all know, there are no systems in place at all for distributing illegal chemicals that people want to take. No such thing exists. And why are we even discussing it? <laughs> um, does the CDC or the FDA or whatever have a contingency plan if suddenly there's like literally everything you throw at something? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'll put it to you this way. Um, the federal government... Uh, the federal government has a lot of has big big stores of documents that say uh you know we've had a meeting and we need a contingency plan for xyz and we're going to come up with it on such date and a lot of these plans are like not public information and um and when you contact the federal government as i did many times while i was writing this to say <laughs> What's your contingency in the case of X? What's your contingency? Because that's what, I mean, that was, <laughs> that's what the book is. Um, the federal government doesn't have a tendency to get on the phone with you and tell you exactly what they, tell you exactly what the plan is for XYZ contingency. Uh, so, um, so presumably a lot of the, a lot of the quarantine procedures that, uh, that we, that we know about from, um, something like the tiny little instances of Ebola that we've had so far are, are sort of what they have in mind. There's a, there's a, there's a quarantine center at the university of uh, Indiana. Uh, anyway, some unexpected Midwestern university has the best quarantine in the country. Um, and, uh, and as far as exactly how they'll, they'll roll out some, some plan to stop a, an outbreak of uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, uh, we kind of we don't know. We kind of don't know exactly. We won't know exactly until it happens. When you were hitting up the federal government asking them about these plans, did it raise suspicions? Because that kind of ties into <laughs> this question I have about... I think I'm probably on a lot of lists. <laughs> well, you mentioned in the book about how antibiotic or drug-resistant uh, bacteria could be used as bioterrorism. I mean, I don't... I mean, the, the, not, not, not drug-resistant bacteria, but, but, but bacteria in general have been used as bioterrorism, yeah. But it seems like it's really rare because it seems like it's kind of a clumsy way to kill a lot of people. If you want to do something, there's other ways that are probably more effective. You said it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but how effective really would it would it this be at uh it's tough to say because you know when it comes to something like MRSA you have to get that into people's blood like if you just MRSA is not a bacteria that like MRSA is not like salmonella where you eat it and it gives you a, 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 a digestive infection it gives you a digestive disease I wish I was a I wish I was a, an epidemiologist so that I could tell you in more detail about this because somebody's going to come along and say no MRSA, you can eat MRSA and get a MRSA infection. The primary way that people experience MRSA infections is is as uh you know superficial um infections that turn into uh septicemia or 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 something like that. Um as far as antibiotic like antibiotic staff that they're getting from uh something like when the the oregon the oregon cult from that from brave what, what is that netflix documentary called i haven't seen it oh okay the there was that there was that sort of um the rajneeshi 
the Rajneeshi cult in Oregon um, exposed people to just, uh, you know, regular, regular stomach bug bacteria. You give people something like that, and um, yeah, you could potentially, that's something that could potentially kill tons and tons and tons of people. Um, the, uh, the, oh, I wish I could, I wish I could tell you which, the Infectious Disease Society of America, I think is the acronym. Um, they wrote a, they wrote a sort of scenario about, um, about tainted milk um, and people ingesting tainted milk and that causing um, hundreds of millions of deaths, or not hundreds of millions of deaths, but some high number of, of uh, fatalities from, from that. And it's not totally clear that uh, that terrorism through um, tainted milk is like an effective way of killing people. But like like so many things for this book, it's like we won't know until we won't know until the day finally comes that somebody tries it. Right. Since this is a drug podcast, have you encountered much about antibiotic resistance in the injection drug using community in your research? That's something I that's something I should have looked into. But I mean, as I've now uh, as I'm now rolling out the actual book itself, people come to me with things like that. Like, uh, well, well, did you write about you know uh, an infection that begins with people's needles that they use for intravenous drug use and like and that feels like such an oversight but uh and it does now that you're now that you're saying it to me but like um that's just you interacting with the book you know you know every everybody has the everybody has the power to do what i did and just imagine the consequences of these things these things occurring like um well you could have probably written a book about any of these chapters an entire book based on just the jurassic that's exactly right yeah (laughs) well somebody did his name was michael Crichton. um but but uh but no i mean but but like you know to to your point uh like safe injection sites uh are obviously if, if if i showed this book to somebody at a safe injection site they'd be like well i'll tell you what'll happen the day that the antibiotics don't work anymore because that's those are the terms that they think about when they think about bacteria they think about tainted needles and and i didn't get there when i was writing it but like you know but like if it if it prompts a discussion like that then great you know that's exactly what i was trying to do when i wrote it well i don't think it was an oversight but uh i do want to bring up the topic a little bit um it is something that i've encountered as a drug policy reporter um for example there's this 2009 study patterns and determinations of inappropriate antibiotic use in injection drug users, which found three things. Um, The first is unmonitored individuals may be at increased risk for allergic reactions, um, drug-to-drug interactions, and other adverse effects. Um, I think some of the reasons for this could be, why are people who inject drugs more at risk for infections? Is because not having access to sterile syringes or poor health outcomes from nutrition? Second, their infections may not be adequately treated because a leftover supply of antibiotics is unlikely to be sufficient for a full course. And this could happen because if you're an injection drug user, you're at more risk for being arrested or robbed. You can lose your medications that way if you're picked up off the street. Every time you bulldoze a homeless encampment, you're increasing the risk for uh, antibiotic resistance. And the third thing they found is that self-directed antibiotic treatment may be initiated for inappropriate indications, particularly for abscesses, 
I think this one comes down to education. Um, often injection drug users are isolated from society. They are outside of the healthcare system. And the point is, is antibiotic resistance is another example of how we need to humanize drug users and there needs to be better education among drug use about antibiotics. Uh, this is why supervised consumption sites are so important to me and others because they're often the first step for introducing some people to the healthcare system. If getting sterile syringes is the only healthcare they're getting, it can make a big difference and tamp down some of these, the spread of these infections. I'm not saying, of course, that we should be blaming drug users if an outbreak occurs. I don't really know how much of a risk it is from this community spreading to everybody else. Probably just the same as anything else in this scenario. I'm just trying to emphasize less stigma and not more um, to uh, encourage greater communication. And the same goes with the HIV and hepatitis C infections. Sorry, I'm kind of ranting. But, no, uh, this is great. <laughs> the same goes with HIV and hepatitis C because places that don't have syringe access programs see higher incidences of bloodborne diseases spread even among non-drug users. You can look at Florida, for example, or Indiana, where Mike Pence kind of delayed implementation of a syringe access program. And the nation recently reported uh, that as new research from Yale School of Public Health published in the British medical journal, The Lancet, uh, showed that the whole program that Mike Pence, Indiana, was so marred by chaos and disorder that it actually had little effect on the outbreak. So it's oh. not just like, you can't just like be like, oh, there's one syringe exchange, which is what Florida did. They had one in the entire state, and Florida has the highest rate of HIV in the country. Um, so you can't just, you have to really take these communities seriously, not treat them as criminals, not try to just isolate them from society, because that just further keeps them away and furthers the risk of spreading diseases, I think. Yeah, and and like um, that that is something that cropped up again and again and again as I was as I was researching this book is that like there's always going to be somebody um, somebody on the margins of society who is going to take the brunt of whatever happens. That's just a pattern when bad things happen. <laughs> when bad things happen, it happens the worst to people on the margins just simply because the because the infrastructure that we have for treatment or for uh, not necessarily in medical situations, but any sort of situation, the infrastructure that we have for helping people isn't designed to help the people that we marginalize. Just across the board, when, when any bad thing happens, marginalized people get the worst of it. Are there any other solutions about antibiotic resistance we should mention? In your book, you go over sick leave being this novel concept in the West yeah, yeah. and also condoms. Um, I think I was reading something recently about somebody calling for a second contraceptive revolution. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think we need that. You know, because like, and, and you hate to be Lisa Simpson about it. And, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's very funny to do memes or whatever about how condoms suck and like it's it you can't really you can't really fight that. Uh you can't really fight somebody saying like oh, they don't feel good on my dick. Okay, well, they don't. But um at, like these are bacteria and we have a we have a very surprisingly effective um prophylactic. That's why that's why they're called that. Prophylactic for these bacteria that uh that that you can use it already exists they're already available everywhere they're cheap as fuck they're cheap as fuck you get used to them yeah yeah so um you know like that is that is that is i mean those kinds of public health things are you know as as 
this as the antibiotic uh, resistance fear crops up, those kinds of public health things just they 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 kind of they they'll kind of start to jump out at you more when you when there's no drug you know we were talking about that tainted milk thing um even more so with tainted meat uh when there's no drug to treat a bacteria that you might get from a from a rare steak then you, when you glance down at that that warning on the bottom of the menu that says you know you can get bacteria from this steak if you don't get it cooked well um you might read that a little bit differently when there aren't like plentiful drugs to to clean up that bacteria for you. When that could turn into septicemia and kill you, then that might be something that you'll think about a little bit differently, you know, despite what like Anthony Bourdain or whoever you're, whoever people are watching this week on the Food Network says about cooking meat rare, like you might not want to do that anymore. Um and then another thing, another thing is hospitals. You know, it was it was really eye opening to have doctors talk to me about uh, about what they call process, and uh, and and process is just keeping people's people's people clean. You know, people are people are filthy, and then they come into the hospital and they and they sit there for God knows how long. There are delays before they can get their surgery and. No matter if they've bathed, they become filthy again. We're all filthy. I'm filthy. You're filthy. We're covered with bacteria, and um, you know when. And to have a doctor explain that, like, you don't get MRSA because there was MRSA on his scalpel. You get MRSA because you touched you touched some MRSA while you were, you know, you you you. You went, you went for a walk in the hospital, you touched an IV bag, or you touched a wall, and the wall had some bacteria on it. It's fine on your hand, but, but once it's on your hand, where it's not, hurt, it's not really hurting you on your hand, but then you scratch your belly, and now you have it on your belly. It's not hurting you there either. But then you go for surgery, and maybe the iodine missed that spot after you scratched it. And then the scalpel pushes through that spot where you touched your belly, and that MRSA goes straight into your wound. And that's how you get an infection. And if you can if you can kind of explain that to people step by step, and they start to think about while they're in the hospital, and they start to think about like what's on their hands and how are they how are they behaving and how are they thinking about the bacteria that are all around them. And one thing I gotta point out is there's no place where there's more antibiotic resistant bacteria than a fucking hospital. <laughs> The places are swimming with them because they're also swimming with antibiotics. Um, so, you know, we will think more in terms of this this term, process, as we as we think more about uh, uh, um, as we think as we worry more about antibiotics. And can I get the one more point about this? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I for the book, I went to uh, this city in India called Surat where there'd been a, in, in, I believe, 1994, there was an outbreak of the plague. Um, bacteria don't get much scarier than that. Uh, but this outbreak only killed about, this was an outbreak that only killed a few dozen people, which is, I mean, a lot of people to die. But when you think about a, an outbreak of the plague, um, it, it sounds like it should kill a million people it's the plague 
It's the granddaddy of all bacterial illnesses. Um, and this, by the way, was the pneumonic plague, meaning it's the, it's the variant that you can spread by coughing on people, which, you know, bubonic plague has to be spread by fleas. You get it, you get it from flea bites. But if you can spread it just <laughs> and give someone the plague, uh, that's about as scary as it gets. And only like 55 people died in Surat that year. And the reason, the reason was awareness. The reason is that we are no longer medieval people. In, in, every, in pretty much every country in the world, you know, you see this lately. Uh, I think two years ago there was, a, there was a bad outbreak of plague that I think they're still living through in Madagascar. Um, but in, in nearly every country in the entire world, people know to be scared of the plague. And they know what it is. They know that it's a microbe. They know that it's a contagious microbe and that it, uh, that it spreads, that these things spread. You generally know that you spread, you, you, know, you know how you spread germs. And, and when the plague was, when the plague was new, not when the plague was new, but um, in the, in the, uh, um, during the Black Death, um, in, the, in that era, people were ignorant and they were, on the whole, a lot poorer than they are now. So poor, in fact, uh, that, you know, they couldn't afford clothes. And so you would feel inclined to maybe steal clothes off a corpse. And it wouldn't really matter if somebody had told you that the person who had died in those clothes had died of plague, because for all you knew, plague was something that came from the devil. And to be told that that came from their clothes was that sounded just as much like a superstition as anything else. And you're cold and you need those fucking clothes. And, you know, so, uh, my point is just that we live in quite a different world than, um, than, than we did during the black death. And, you know, like, don't get me wrong. Septicemia is a horrible way to die and more people are going to, you know, like that's, that's the, that's the big takeaway. Septicemia is a bad, scary, painful way to die. And in, in the book, I give a detailed account of what it is like to die from it. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, if there's a, if there's, if there is a positive takeaway, it's that, it's that I think maybe we overrate drugs as sort of the ultimate solution to the problem of bacteria. There are, there are other, we have other ways, like we were just saying about condoms and steak and all that, of, of dealing with this stuff. It's not great that the drugs are going away. <laughs> we, we, were, we, we really liked those. That was great. But there are other, we, we've, we, have, a, we have a lot of, of approaches to this problem. So let's move on to the day doping is allowed at the Olympics. Um, this is an interesting scenario to me. First of all, I don't give a fuck about the Olympics. I never have. I don't think I ever will. I kind of get the role that sports play in society of like taming down this aggressive tribalist ego that is in our roots as primates. But, you know, other than that, I don't really find a lot of joy in the participation of, of highly capitalistic commercialized sports. That's just my personal opinion, but it's popcorn entertainment. I think what you're getting at with this question is, is like, why don't we allow doping in, in organized sports? 
because isn't the point to see how fucking fast you can go or how how much you can lift and if you can use other tools to help you get to that point what's wrong with that <laughs> so i mean I tried. I I really tried not to be too polemical in this book. I do get polemical. I do get openly polemical um, in the chapter on ending modern slavery, um, because I think that's that's one that people just just sort of like try not to think about. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're talking on these devices that were probably built with right. slave labor, yeah. exactly. So, um, so with this chapter. It it was a it was a bit hard to resist that that tendency because um, because the debate can just be so goddamn silly the debate around the debate around uh, drugs in sports um, I I open with a I open with a guy saying to another guy if you allow drugs in sports that's like allowing motorcycles in foot races you know uh, and and it's just like you know it's patently absurd to view it that way it's also not because because the rules of the sport say you don't take the drugs. If you take the drugs and the referees, as it were, catch you doing it, you've broken the rules, you are subject to punishment, in this case, like having your being stripped of your medal. So you're a rule breaker, and, and it's just like whatever, traveling in basketball. It's a violation of what you were supposed to do. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Um, but with this one, you know, when you look at this topic closely, you see that um, fairness in the Olympics is a is a very is a very sort of flimsy concept. It's not on a the concept of fairness in the Olympics is is not is on a balsa wood foundation that's very rickety and ready to break apart at any moment. Um, you know, you see something when you see something like the uh the russian doping scandal that got them pseudo banned from the from the most recent olympics um you know that feels wrong it feels like oh they were scamming the olympics and they need to be kicked out if you look at it a little bit more closely then you see a situation like happened a couple of years ago um in in tennis and you know it wasn't olympic tennis but it, but the drug monitoring was done by wada which is an olympic associated monitoring uh organization um you know they found that that maria sharapova had been had been using this drug called meldonium which is a like an over-the-counter heart medication that's really really popular in eastern in eastern european drug uh, uh, uh sports supplements and uh, she was using meldonium. She wasn't supposed to. How did it happen? She didn't read an email that said you have to stop taking meldonium. She didn't see the email. She didn't look on her bottle of sports vitamins and notice that it says meldonium on there and stopped taking them. And they investigated her and they said, oh, well, look at that. You were taking meldonium dead to rights. You did it. The rules said you couldn't, and you did, and so you're banned for a year. But when they wrote that report, they also said, we don't think you were malicious in doing this. We think you were following the rules in good faith. You thought, and you accidentally broke a rule, but these are the breaks, so you're banned for a year. So she, she'll always have that scar on her record. 
But the thing about meldonium is that uh, we don't know if that really makes you better at sports. We, uh, we're basing that off of suppositions, some common sense. Right. There haven't been like clinical trials on no. some of these supplements. No, there haven't been clinical trials on most of these things. So one of the, one of the, one of the really interesting things about writing about this topic um, was that, you know, the, the, um, this, guy, uh, this guy that I spoke to, Bill Mallon, who was a doctor for a lot of years at the Olympic Games, um, he, uh, you know, he, he follows this very closely because he's there treating people. And he told me, well, most of the drugs that people take for sports, uh, they, they don't know whether that, they don't, they have no clue. It's not actually doing anything for them. They just take it because they think it probably helps. He said, uh, he said steroids, we're certain that makes people stronger. And then there have been, cl- there, there was a survey of, a, a survey of all of the, of the studies on steroids in sports shows basically an absolutely ironclad, we are very certain, uh, a, 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 you, can, you can state pretty generally that um, steroids make you 20% stronger. That's about that's a that is about what the numbers say. They make you twenty percent stronger. In other words, a lot stronger. And uh, and so when it comes to when it comes to uh, weight based events at the Olympics, that's going to do a lot. But the rest of it, we kind of don't know. We think we think that uh, um, we think that uh, what do you call it? EPO, the the Lance Armstrong drug. We're pretty sure that that makes people more effective at things like cycling and running, um, but we're not positive. And the rest of them, we're really not positive. So we're policing this stuff based on a lot of guesswork, you know? So that's just one of the reasons why all of this, like, Olympic uh, fairness policing, mm, not on the steadiest foundation in the world. In the future, I think all drugs will eventually be legal and regulated with almost no exceptions, just because we have about 100 years of data on prohibition and it doesn't work. There's got to be something else. And eventually we'll probably have legal markets for cocaine and meth and heroin. And they will. The, I think the best way from talking to experts about this is that they will allow milder alternatives to be have more access and lots of drug treatment access and lots of harm reduction and all this other stuff. So eventually we'll probably have a world where it's like, you take meth, who cares? It's not a big deal. And and that would apply to the Olympics as well. So you, you take meth so that you can run faster. Although you talk about how amphetamines aren't exactly the most effective uh, for uh, enhancing your abilities necessarily. No, the, the meth is, amphetamines are an interesting one when it comes to sports because what it looks like they do is they make you uh, they make you feel better around the time that it comes to like practice. If you're somebody who if you need to train, you got to get on your bike in the morning. If you take meth to get amped up to get out there and practice, it, it'll help you in that regard. But um, if you are actually at the Olympic Village getting ready to do your cycling competition, um, there's 
there are competing scientific studies on on what would actually happen. A lot of it shows that you'll overheat. You'll overheat a lot faster than somebody who is not on amphetamines. It's probably a bad idea to take them um, at your at your actual event. Uh, there's a little bit of conflicting data. And I mean, it goes without saying, if you've ever taken Ritalin or something like that, the way that it makes you feel is amped up and ready to do some, <laughs> to yeah. do some physical stuff. So, I mean, you know, that that's kind of what we're going off of when we say like, well, it's obviously performance enhancing, but since it has other side effects, it's like, we won't know until that Olympics. That's when we'll find out. <laughs> That's when we'll find out exactly what effect it has. We'll say, like, well, these people were on meth, and they did X, Y, Z. These people weren't on meth, and, you know, they didn't, they, or they did better, or they did worse. We don't, we don't know yet. You know, um, like, when you, when you, have you ever, did you ever play the video game Metal Gear Solid? Just the fifth one. Oh, okay, I don't know if it's still in. The, I don't know if it's still in the fifth game. But when uh, in the first couple of Metal Gear Solid games, if you wanted better sniper accuracy, then you would take benzodiazepines. That were, like you could you would find benzodiazepines lying on the ground, take them, and then is that still in Metal Gear Solid Five? I think they made up names of these drugs. One of them is called Acceleramin, <laughs> and the other right. one's like focus men or something you yeah, know, yeah. Like, they sound like drugs but I, I didn't look them up i don't think they're real so in a video game it's it's one to one you take it it makes it you it makes your shooting better um in and and that is how the olympics evaluates that you know that class of drugs uh when when you take them for a shooting event they say oh you're definitely you're definitely your accuracy is definitely improved Re the but the you know the real world uh olympic actual in in the olympic stadium doing a shooting event taking diazepam versus somebody who's not taking diazepam we do not know yet if that if that will make you better in the actual olympic uh in an actual olympic shooting event if that will make you better is some of it probably will you know uh, uh, there was this guy named uh, doc ellis who um uh, a baseball player in the in the 70s who pitched a no-hitter on LSD. Does that mean that all pitchers should take LSD before they get on the mound? Probably not, but we don't know. We don't know yet because we haven't been able to do the sort of like peer-reviewed trials that would tell us that information with any certainty. I love that story of Doc Ellis. There's a really great animation out there about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's great. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I mean, I wasn't there, obviously, but uh, I wonder if the reason why he was he was able to pitch a no-hitter was because he was on LSD, and everybody up to bat was like, why the hell is he freaking out? And just <laughs> right, got distracted. Yeah. Like, who knows if it was the ability of the time dilation of acid being able to, like, focus in or something or if it's just him being weird but i mean that you make an interesting point because like uh you know if you're if you're on lsd then something is happening with you psychologically so there are so baseball which is an olympic sport by the way baseball has a psychological component to it the, it's that it's that it's kind of like poker in that way so who knows who knows psychotropic there could be uh you know taking psychedelic drugs or taking drugs that only affect your mental state 
uh, could be could really make the difference between winning and losing in baseball. We don't know. Yeah. In order for that to happen, um, the World Anti-Doping Agency would have to be abolished. And what a name, the World Anti-Doping <laughs> Agency. WADA, yes. It makes NIDA sound like it's like a pro-drug organization. Um, but they would have to be abolished. Uh, the Olympic Council uh, would have to come to the conclusion, this is what you write in your book, that rules against the drugs are no longer worthwhile. Then they write a report calling for WADA to be downsized or for its mission to be changed. And from there, we suddenly probably see like a, as you write, like a huge influx of people taking all kinds of weird things to improve their performance. And that would probably be equivalent to a clinical trial because you can't really, exactly, you can't really yeah. do a clinical trial. You can't be like giving meth to people to make them run faster that, that would not pass an ethics review board. Yeah, ex that's, that's exactly right. So, I mean, you know, you can, you can look at the history of the Olympics and kind of see how this would play out. You know, like look at the movie Chariots of Fire. That was the that was that that kind of precipitated the beginning of um, of a performance enhancing technique called hiring a coach and training, which people had not been doing up until that point. They'd just been show they'd just been like a bunch of fine strapping young lads showing up to the events and and having a nice run and seeing who was the best and everybody would shake hands afterwards and say, "Ah, oh, you're a fast young man. Nice work." Um, it, it it was ungentlemanly and and some would argue unfair for people in those days to uh hire a coach and train and now it's become the norm to hire a coach and train and so you know the way that you'll see um some some olympic athlete maybe show up one year come in 14th place in sprinting and then the next year have some kind of training breakthrough and suddenly becoming in first place you would see the same thing come about because people figured out what what drugs to take in what quantity um and then they and then they'd show up with their drug regimen all dialed in and then they then they'd win those events but um what this guy uh that i spoke to uh named mark burnley at the university of kent told me was that then there'd be a plateau um there'd be all of these Olympians showing up, maybe the first first uh, eight years of the Olympics, high out of their minds, H high out of their minds, not knowing which, not knowing which chemicals to take, uh, doing it wrong, um, and 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 then after it kind of all got worked out and everybody figured out how to how to perform on drugs and and which drugs worked, then. It would kind of revert to the status quo, and you would see uh, the uh, Olympics that would pretty much look like the ones that we have now, more or less. Although um, uh, that that guy Bill Mallon, the the doctor who works for who who worked at the Olympics for a long time, um, he he told me that at that first event there there'd be more injuries that you that there are injuries that we associate with particularly steroid use. Um, so t torn, uh, torn patella tendons, he said in, in athletes, in uh, track and field athletes, um, is something that you see particularly when they're taking a lot of steroids. And also to your earlier point, um, you know, if people are injecting, if people are injecting steroids right there in the Olympic village, then something that we would see as well would be infections, um, you know they're they're opening up veins they're just they're just exposed so we were talking about process you know so all of a sudden we have to figure out how to 
make sure that people aren't, you know, picking up all kinds of bacterial infections and spreading them to other athletes right there in the Olympic Village. Well, to that point, I think that those, those the spread of infections can be easily mitigated if you're shooting upright and if you have um, syringe disposal things everywhere. I mean, those should be everywhere already. They're, they've started putting them in Starbucks bathrooms and stuff like that. Um, there's a really great book on there called How to Get Off Right. Um, you can look it up and it's free to download and it's from the 90s, but a lot of uh, the tips hold up. Um, it basically teaches you how to shoot up correctly, uh, which I've only ever done once, but it was, you know, you, you basically had to clean, clean the site with a alcohol swab, you know, use a tie off to get the vein and, you know, always use a clean needle because after using a needle, a syringe one time, um, the barb on the end, the little thing will just start to, to get more barbed. Uh, and it just, it just messes up your veins more and more. So you see those kinds of infections more in, in situations where people don't have access to clean syringes, sterile syringes. You shouldn't use clean and dirty terminology, but it's hard habit to kick. Um, yeah, so using sterile syringes every single time can help reduce those things. Um, bleach. You find yourself uh, needing find yourself needing bleach, uh, according to that uh, the famous Nirvana album. Yeah, bleach will kill. Uh, I'm pretty sure it'll kill HIV, but it won't kill hepatitis C oh, okay. if you reuse a syringe. So this is why we got to stop being like, oh, injection drug use is this evil thing that only bad people do. Spread syringes out and let people have them. Uh, and we'll see a drop in infections. There's so much research. Well, you know, this this uh, this brings up another point that I uh, kind of address in the in the chapter, which is that... Um, Right now, if you are if you're a bodybuilder who wants to take steroids, um, that's so stigmatized that where you can that 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 the place that you can go to find out, like like I didn't know that bleach isn't the best idea to use. You need you need uh, you need a, a better process than well you know you should use it if you don't have other options okay i when i used to work at a syringe access program we would give out bleach kits and tell them how to use it and it'd be like look this is you probably shouldn't be cleaning your syringes you should just be using a clean one every time but if for whatever reason you can't use the bleach it's going to at least make a difference on the hiv side not the hepatitis c got it got it got it so i mean like you know right now where you get that information is is uh places like um ug bodybuilding these like bodybuilding forums um because unless you have a crooked sports physician uh which is a very 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 expensive resource uh you are not going to know you're not going to know what quantity to shoot up at you're not going to know where to get good steroids you're not going to know anything other than what they tell you on some pretty sketchy websites. Um, and un unless you can find more reliable websites or more reliable podcasts um, uh, for, for sort of how to do this stuff. Um, and so the, and so, and I don't really have an answer for this, but, uh, but the drug, the big pharma companies would, could expect a windfall in terms of people um, using their 
using their drugs uh, to to prepare for the Olympics and to and to train and to try and qualify for the Olympics. You know, it would it would cause a shift in the entire sports world and um, and 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 a, and a turn toward these chemicals. But it, but it's a devil's bargain for a, a big pharma corporation because, as we're now seeing with the um, the the opiate the whole big opiate kerfuffle, uh, you know, when people turn on you and vilify you, um, then you, uh, then you may be kind of try and sell the public on the idea that you're not for them just taking your drug willy nilly all they want. Uh, even though, you know, clearly that is what you want. Um, so the drug companies would be, uh, the drug companies would be in a bit of a weird position, especially the drug companies that currently uh, partly sponsor the Olympics. Um, you know, you can't just be, you can't just be, you can't just say like buy Merck performance enhancing drugs for all your, for all your performance enhancing needs. You're not going to be able to do it that way. Um, that's going to probably get you in a little bit of trouble when, uh, bad things happen to to some of these athletes but you know you you do want to have the most you do want to be manufacturing the most reliable the the you want that customer loyalty of course um but it's so it's a it'll be a hard needle for them to thread like i said in the i don't have the answer <laughs> for those i can't i can't really offer them any advice for you know what what to do in in these situations there are there are some pretty rich corporations i think they'll probably figure out i think they'll be fine so it's a weird dichotomy we really just have to kill the part of humanity not not literally kill them but you know stop this idea that that drugs are anything other than tools that can be used for good or bad not not I don't know. We, we give too much personification to drugs, in my opinion. Um, so that gets me to this point. Where, like, How do you think fans of the Olympics would react to a culture of people using well, using drugs to enhance their performance? Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds, I think, a lot more exciting than it really is. Um, you know, I, I sort of I sort of jokingly suggest in the book that you can you can attract people to a a, you know, a TV interview with a with a famous athlete showing you their doping regimen or something like that, um, because people are because as we've seen over the years, as we've seen on like when like when like Oprah interviews Mark McGuire or Barbara Walters interviews Lance Armstrong or something like that, um, there is something fascinating about athletes who dope. Right now, right now, kind of because it's illicit. It's oh they weren't supposed to they're villains now. I I had a poster of Lance Armstrong on my wall and now that's a bad poster because he's a bad person. Um, we love redemption arcs in our society. Sure, right. Well, we Britney we, Spears, for example. We, yeah, we, exactly. We love redemption arcs, but we also love public stonings. You know, um, which is I mean that's what we did to Britney Spears and Lance Armstrong. I think we can expect the public to to be to behave rationally and without any hysteria. Uh, um, uh, no, I mean they'll 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 flip out and they'll expect the Olympics. I would assume to become this, as I call it in the book, a hulked out circus maximus. 
they will expect people to be like there on the sidelines of the sport shooting up like turning huge because they shot themselves up with a instant muscle drug and then going out there and like throwing a javelin into the stratosphere and that's just not what's going to happen you know um athletes athletes on steroids are going to look like athletes on steroids go just google pictures of athletes on steroids that's what they look like uh and and so when you go when you go when you pay money to see the like doped olympics i'm sorry to say you're gonna be a little bit uh, disappointed about what's happening down there it's gonna look a lot like what they've already been showing on nbc all these years that's what you're gonna see i wonder if that would cause like purists to rift and create like the pure olympics or something which sounds really bad when you say it that way but i didn't i didn't cover it in my book but i mean i think we could safely assume there is i mean there are bodybuilding there are there are 100 clean bodybuilding competitions you know where they have to be uh tested year round to to show that these are i mean these are the, a lot of these are like straight edge guys straight edge bodybuilders um and you know it's kind of cool to know what because if you look at bodybuilders like they're they're all on steroids at some phase they were taking something they were taking a, a lot of a lot of different drugs uh qualify as steroids or work as steroids and if they show up in a blood test and you're out you were taking steroids regardless of whether it said steroids on the package um but it is it is interesting to know what bodybuilding is like when you don't take steroids and it's interesting to see so i mean those kinds of um those kinds of competitions aren't worthless it's kind of it's sort of it's sort of interesting to show that delineation and since long term steroids are not great for your body um i think that there could be interest for good reason uh in seeing competitions like that like you said it's like uh, oh these are pure and these over here are impure well they're both pushing their bodies to the limits and it's not like lifting weights without having taken steroids is not at all hazardous for your body whichever way you go you are pushing your body to its limits and you know watching watching what happens is the reason we pay money to watch sports um so i just think it's it just creates a an interesting delineation if you will well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, so your new book is called The Day It Finally Happens. And it's coming out on the 17th in the US and it's coming out on the it's coming out on September 4th in the UK. Is this is this podcast coming out before September 4th? Okay. So I don't know, it could be it's 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 almost so if you're in the UK, it looks probably available now. Go to go to WH Smith's immediately and get your hands on it. And uh, people can find you on Twitter, Mike Lee Pearl. Yep, you can find me there. Um, and you can find stuff I write at various places online. All right, well, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. In my kitchen. Yep. <laughs> it is a nice kitchen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, who has just been killing it lately, 
and our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music by Pictures of the Floating World. Narcotica is sponsored by Billy Bob's Big Long Slong Shape Bongs. Just kidding, that's a made up product, I hope. In all seriousness, we don't want to clutter this program with stupid ads. So thank you so much to our Patreons who help keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to help us out, join dozens of pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Or help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're finally on Spotify! Tell your friends about us and carve our name into the bathroom mirror at Burger King. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about the medical benefits of cocaine, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.